Section 18 of To the Last Man by Zane Gray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 9, Part 2. Gordon, you stand in the door and keep your eye peeled, went on Blue. Now, boys, listen. I've thought it all out. This game of manhunting is the same to me as cattle raising is to you. And my life in Texas all comes back to me, I reckon, in good stead for us now. I'm going to kill Lee Jorth, him first, and maybe his brothers. I had to think of a good many ways before I hit on one I reckon will be sure. It's got to be sure. Jorth has got to die. Well, here's my plan. That Jorth outfit is drinking some. We can gamble on it. They're not going to leave that store, and of course, they'll be expecting us to start a fight. I reckon they'll look for some such siege as they held round Isbel's ranch. But we sure ain't going to do that. I'm going to surprise that outfit. There's only one man among them who is dangerous, and that's Queen. I know Queen, but he doesn't know me, and I'm going to finish my job before he gets acquainted with me. After that, all right? Blue paused a moment, his eyes narrowing down, his whole face setting in a hard cast of intense preoccupation, as if he visualized a scene of extraordinary nature. "'Well, what's your trick?' demanded Blaisdell. "'You all know Grease's store,' continued Blue, "'how them windows have wooden shutters that keep a light from showing outside. Well, I'm gambling that as soon as it's dark, Jorth's gang will be celebrating.' They'll be drinking, and they'll have a light, and the windows will be shut. They're not going to worry none about us. That store is like a fort. It won't burn. And sure, they'll never think of us charging them in there. Well, as soon as it's dark, we'll go round behind the lots and come up just across the road from Greaves's. I reckon we'd better leave Isbel where he lays till this fight's over. Maybe you'll have more and him to bury. We'll crawl behind them bushes in front of Coleman's yards. And here's where Jean comes in. He'll take an axe, and his guns, of course, and do some of his engines sneaking round to the back of Greaves's store. And, Jean, you must do a slick job of this, but I reckon it'll be easy for you. Back there ought to be dark as pitch, for anyone looking out of the store. And I'm figuring you can take your time and crawl right up. Now, if you don't remember how Greaves's backyard looks, I'll tell you. Here Blue dropped on one knee to the floor, and with a finger he traced a map of Greaves's barn and fence, the back door and window, and especially a break in the stone foundation, which led into a kind of cellar where Greaves stored wood and other things that could be left outdoors. Jean, I take particular pains to show you where this hole is, said Blue. "'because if the gang runs out, you can duck in there and hide. "'And if they run out into the yard, well, you'll make it a sorry run for them. "'When you've crawled up close to Greaves's back door "'and waited long enough to see and listen, "'then you're to run fast and swing your axe smash against the window. "'Take a quick peep in if you want to. It might help. "'Then jump quick and take a swing at the door. "'You'll be standing to one side.' So if the gang shoots through the door, they won't hit you. Bang that door good and hard. Well, now's where I come in. 
When you swing that axe, I'll sure run to the front of the store. Jorth and his outfit will be some attentive to that pounding of yours on the back door, so I reckon, and they'll be looking that way. I'll run in, yell, and throw my guns on Jorth. Hump, is that all? ejaculated Blaisdell. I reckon that's all, and I'm figuring it's a hell of a lot, responded Blue, dryly. That's what Jorth will think. Where do we come in? Well, y'all can back me up, replied Blue dubiously. You see, my plan goes as far as killing Jorth, and maybe his brothers. Maybe I'll get a crack at Queen, but I'll be sure of Jorth. After that, all depends. Maybe it'll be easy for me to get out. And if I do, you fellas will know it and can fill that storeroom full of bullets. Well, Blue, with all respect to you, I sure don't like your plan, declared Blaisdell. Success depends on too many little things, any one of which might go wrong. Blaisdell, I reckon I know this here game better than you, replied Blue. A gunfighter goes by instinct. This trick will work. But suppose that front door of Greaves's store is barred, protested Blaisdell. It hasn't got any bar, said Blue. You sure? Yes, I reckon, replied Blue. Hell, man, ain't you taking a terrible chance, queried Blaisdell. Blue's answer to that was a look that brought blood to Blaisdell's face. Only then did the rancher really comprehend how the little gunman had taken such desperate chances before and meant to take them now, not with any hope or assurance of escaping with his life, but to live up to his peculiar code of honor. Blaisdell, did you ever hear of me in Texas? he queried dryly. Well, no, Blue. I can't swear I did, replied the rancher apologetically. And Isabel was always sort of mysterious about his acquaintance with you. My name's not Blue. Uh-huh. Well, what is it, then, if I'm safe to ask? returned Blaisdell gruffly. It's King Fisher, replied Blue. The shock that stiffened Blaisdell must have been communicated to the others. Jean certainly felt amaze, and some other emotion not fully realized, when he found himself face to face with one of the most notorious characters ever known in Texas, an outlaw long supposed to be dead. Men, I reckon I'd kept my secret if I had any idea of coming out of this Isabel Jorth war alive, said Blue. But I'm going to cash. I feel it here. Isabel was my friend. He saved me from being lynched in Texas. And so I'm going to kill Jorth. Now I'll take it kind of you, if any of you come out of this alive, to tell who I was and why I was on the Isabel side. Because this sheep and cattle war... This talk of Jorth and the Hashknife Gang, it makes me sick. I know there's been crooked work on Isbel's side, too. And I never wanted on record that I killed Jorth because he was a rustler. By God, Blue, it's late in the day for such talk, burst out Blaisdell in rage and amaze. But I reckon you know what you're talking about. Well, I sure don't want to hear it. At this juncture, Bill Isbell quietly entered the cabin, too late to hear any of Blue's statement. Jean was positive of that, for as Blue was speaking those last revealing words, Bill's heavy boots had resounded on the gravel path outside, 
Yet something in Bill's look, or in the way Blue averted his lean face, or in the entrance of Bill at that particular moment, all of these together seemed to Jean to add further mystery to the long secret causes leading up to the Jorth Isbel War. Did Bill know what Blue knew? Jean had an inkling that he did, and on the moment, so perplexing and bitter, Jean gazed out of the door, down the deserted road, to where his dead father lay, white-haired and ghastly in the sunlight. Blue, you could have kept that to yourself, as well as your real name, interposed Jean with bitterness. It's too late now for either to do any good. But I appreciate your friendship for Dad, and I'm ready to help carry out your plan. That decision of John's appeared to put an end to protest or argument from Blaisdell or any of the others. Blue's fleeting dark smile was one of satisfaction. Thereupon, most of this group of men seemed to settle a grim restraint. They went out and walked and watched. They came in again, restless and somber. Jean thought that he must have bent his gaze a thousand times down the road to the tragic figure of his father. That sight roused all emotions in his breast, and the one that stirred there most was pity. The pity of it, Gaston Isbel lying face down in the dust of the village street. Patches of blood showed on the back of his vest and one white-sleeved shoulder. He had been shot through. Every time Jean saw this blood, he had to stifle a gathering of wild, savage impulses. Meanwhile, the afternoon hours dragged by, and the village remained as if its inhabitants had abandoned it. Not even a dog showed on the side of the road. Jorth and some of his men came out in front of the store and sat on the steps in close convening groups. Every move they made seemed significant of their confidence and importance. About sunset, they went back into the store, closing door and window shutters. Then Blaisdell called the Isabel faction to have food and drink. Jean felt no hunger, and Blue, who had kept apart from the others, showed no desire to eat. Neither did he smoke, though early in the day he had never been without a cigarette between his lips. Twilight fell and darkness came. Not a light showed anywhere in the blackness. Well, I reckon it's about time, said Blue, and he led the way out of the cabin to the back of the lot. Jean strolled behind him, carrying his rifle and an axe. Silently, the other men followed. Blue turned to the left and led through the field until he came within sight of a dark line of trees. That's where the road turns off, he said to Jean, and here's the back of Coleman's place. Well, Jean, good luck. Jean felt the grip of a steel-like hand, and in the darkness he caught the gleam of Blue's eyes. Jean had no response in words for the laconic Blue, but he wrung the hard, thin hand and hurried away in the darkness. Once alone, his part of the business at hand rushed him into eager, thrilling action. This was the sort of work he was fitted to do. In this instance, it was important, but it seemed to him that Blue had coolly taken the perilous part. And this cowboy, with gray in his thin hair, was in reality the great King Fisher. 
Jean marveled at the fact, and he shivered all over for Jorth. In ten minutes, fifteen, more or less, Jorth would lie gasping bloody froth and sinking down. Something in the dark, lonely, silent, oppressive summer night told Jean this. He strode on swiftly. Crossing the road at a run, he kept on over the ground he had traversed during the afternoon, and in a few moments he stood breathing hard at the edge of the common behind Greaves's store. A point of light penetrated the blackness. It made Jean's heart leap. The Jorth contingent were burning the big lamp that hung in the center of Greaves's store. Jean listened. Loud voices and coarse laughter sounded, discord, on the melancholy silence of the night. What Blue had called his instinct had surely guided him aright. Death of Gaston Isbel was being celebrated by revel. In a few moments, Jean had regained his breath. Then all his faculty set intensely to the action at hand. He seemed to magnify his hearing and his sight. His movements made no sound. He gained the wagon where he crouched a moment. The ground seemed a pale, obscure medium, hardly more real than the gloom above it. Through this gloom of night, which looked thick like a cloud, but was really clear, shone the thin, bright point of light accentuating the black square that was Greaves's store. Above this stood a gray line of tree foliage, and then the intensely dark blue sky studded with white, cold stars. A hound bayed lonesomely somewhere in the distance. Voices of men sounded more distinctly, some deep and low, others loud, unguarded, with a vacant note of thoughtlessness. Jean gathered all his forces, until sense of sight and hearing were in exquisite accord with the suppleness and lightness of his movements. He glided on about ten short, swift steps before he halted. That was as far as his piercing eyes could penetrate. If there had been a guard stationed outside the store, Jean would have seen him before being seen. He saw the fence, reached it, entered the yard, glided in the dense shadow of the barn until the black square began to loom gray, the color of stone at night. Jean peered through the obscurity. No dark figure of a man showed against that gray wall, only a black patch, which must be the hole in the foundation mentioned. A ray of light now streaked out from the little black window. To the right showed the wide black door. Farther on, Jean glided silently. Then he halted. There was no guard outside. Jean heard the clink of a cap, the lazy draw of a Texan, and then a strong, harsh voice, Jorth's. It strung Jean's whole being tight and vibrating. Inside he was on fire, while cold thrills rippled over his skin. It took tremendous effort of will to hold himself back another instant to listen to look, to feel, to make sure. And that instant charged him with a mighty current of hot blood, straining, throbbing, damning. When John leaped, this current burst. In a few swift bounds, he gained his point halfway between the door and window. He leaned his rifle against the stone wall. 
Then he swung the axe. Crash! The window shutter split and rattled to the floor inside. The silence then broke with a hoarse, What's that? With all his might, Jean swung the heavy axe on the door. Smash! The lower half caved in and banged to the floor. Bright light flared out of the hole. Look out, yelled a man in loud alarm. They're battering the back door. Jean swung again, high on the splintered door. Crash! Pieces flew inside. They've got axes, hoarsely shouted another voice. Shove the counter again the door. No, thundered a voice of authority. That denoted terror as well. Let them come in. Pull your guns and take cover. They ain't coming in, was the hoarse reply. They'll shoot in on us from the dark. Put out the lamp, yelled another. Jean's third heavy swing caved in part of the upper half of the door. Shouts and curses intermingled with the sliding of benches across the floor and the hard shuffle of boots. This confusion seemed to be split and silenced by a piercing yell of different caliber, of terrible meaning. It stayed Jean's swing, caused him to drop the axe and snatch up his rifle. Don't anybody move. Like a steel whip, this voice cut the silence. It belonged to Blue. Jean swiftly bent to put his eye to a crack in the door. Most of those visible seemed to have frozen into unnatural positions. Jorth stood in front of his men, hatless and coatless, one arm outstretched, and his dark profile set toward a little man just inside the door. This man was Blue. Jean needed only one flashing look at Blue's face, at his leveled, quivering guns, to understand why he had chosen this trick. "'Who are you?' demanded Jorth, in husky pants. "'Reckon I'm Isbel's right-hand man,' came the biting reply. "'Once tolerable well-known in Texas. King Fisher.' The name must have been a guarantee of death. Jorth recognized this outlaw and realized his own fate. In the lamplight, his face turned a pale, greenish-white. His outstretched hand began to quiver down. Blue's left gun seemed to leap up and flash red and explode. Several heavy reports merged almost as one. Jorth's arms jerked limply, flinging his gun, and his body sagged in the middle. His hands fluttered like crippled wings and found their way to his abdomen. His death-pale face never changed its set look nor position toward Blue, but his gasping utterance was one of horrible mortal fury and terror. Then he began to sway, still with that strange rigid set of his face toward his slayer until he fell. His fall broke the spell. Even Blue, like the gunman he was, had paused to watch Jorth in his last mortal action. Jorth's followers began to draw and shoot. Jean saw Blue's return fire bring down a huge man who fell across Jorth's body. Then Jean, quick as the thought that actuated him, raised his rifle and shot at the big lamp. It burst in a flare. It crashed to the floor. Darkness followed, a blank, thick, enveloping mantle. Then red flashes of gun emphasized the blackness. Inside the store there broke loose a pandemonium 
of shots, yells, curses, and thudding boots. Jean shoved his rifle barrel inside the door, and holding it low down, he moved it to and fro while he worked lever and trigger until the magazine was empty. Then, drawing a six-shooter, he emptied that. A roar of rifles from the front of the store told Jean that his comrades had entered the fray. Bullets zipped through the door he had broken. Jean ran swiftly round the corner, taking care to shear off a little to the left, and when he got clear of the building, he saw a line of flashes in the middle of the road. Blaisdell and the others were firing into the door of the store. With nimble fingers, Jean reloaded his rifle. Then swiftly he ran across the road and down to get behind his comrades. Their shooting had slackened. Jean saw dark forms coming his way. "'Hello, Blaisdell,' he cried warningly. "'That you, Jean?' returned the rancher, looming up. "'Well, we wasn't worried about you.' "'Blue?' queried Jean sharply. A little dark figure shuffled past Jean. "'Howdy, Jean,' said Blue dryly. "'You sure did your part. Reckon I'll need to be tied up, but I ain't hurt much.' "'Calmer's hit,' cried the voice of Gordon. "'A few yards distance. Help me, somebody.' Jean ran to help Gordon uphold the swaying Colmer. "'Are you hurt bad?' asked Jean anxiously. The young man's head rolled and hung. He was breathing hard and did not reply. They almost had to carry him. "'Come on, men,' called Blaisdell, turning back toward the others who were still firing. "'We'll let well enough alone. Fredericks, you and Bill help me find the body of the old man. It's here somewhere.' Farther on down the road, the searchers stumbled over Gaston Isbel. They picked him up and followed Jean and Gordon, who were supporting the wounded Calmer. Jean looked back to see Blue dragging himself along in the rear. It was too dark to see distinctly. Nevertheless, Jean got the impression that Blue was more severely wounded than he had claimed to be. The distance to Meeker's cabin was not far, but it took what Jean felt to be a long and anxious time to get there. Colmer apparently rallied somewhat. When this procession entered Meeker's yard, Blue was lagging behind. "'Blue, how are you?' called Blaisdell with concern. "'Well, I got my boots on anyhow,' replied Blue huskily. He lurched into the yard and slid down on the grass and stretched out. "'Man, you're hurt bad,' exclaimed Blaisdell. The others halted in their slow march, and, as if, by tacit, unspoken word, lowered the body of Isbel to the ground. Then Blaisdell knelt beside Blue. Jean left calmer to Gordon and hurried to peer down into Blue's dim face. "'No, I ain't hurt,' said Blue, in a much weaker voice. "'I'm just killed. It was Queen. You heard me Queen was only a bad man in that lot. I knowed it. I could have killed him, but I was after Lee Jorth and his brothers. Blue's voice failed there. Well, ejaculated Blaisdell. Sure was funny, Jorth's face, when I said Kingfisher, whispered Blue. Funnier, when I bored him through. But it was Queen. His whisper died away. Blue called Blaisdell sharply. Receiving no answer, he bent lower in the starlight and placed a hand upon the man's breast. 
Well, he's gone. I wonder if he really was the old Texas Kingfisher. No one would ever believe it. But if he killed the Jorths, I'll sure believe him. End of chapter 9, part 2